Hello. Welcome to the Research Podcast. This is the show where we explore ongoing changes in the post-COVID research and technology world. I'm your host Lipsa Nag. So let's get started. Our guest today is Nina Patrick. Nina is the co-founder and CEO of Microbes Biotechnologies. Microbes is a German startup that's building hardware-free next-generation diagnostics to empower users to make data-driven decisions about themselves. This year, Nina has won Newcomer of the Year at German Startup Awards and won the She Loves Tech Western Europe Pitch Competition. Nina is a scientist and has a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences during which she identified specific hormone imbalances caused by pharmaceutical drugs. She started Microbes to enable users to learn about their own hormonal imbalances and deficiencies from the comfort of their own home. Microbes has won the Global Health and Pharma Breakthrough Innovation Excellence Award and was a finalist for the Royal Society of Chemistry Emerging Technologies competition. Welcome to the research podcast Nina. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks Lipsa, so nice to be here. So tell us a little bit uh, about your journey as a researcher in pharmaceutical sciences. Like, how did you uh, get to it and what appealed to you about, about this field? Yeah, so it all, it all began <laughs> um, back when, I mean, I liked chemistry in high school. And actually, my, um, when I was thinking about going to college, I asked my chemistry teacher, you know, what should I major in? I'm thinking about chemistry. And he was like, you're not very good at chemistry. <laughs> and um, but I I didn't you know that didn't want to let that stop me and so I went ahead and I went to college and I went and I studied um, pharmaceutical chemistry and after college went ahead and did the PhD and was trying to figure out kind of where to land and went into a program um, called pharmaceutical sciences focusing in, in drug discovery and development thinking I was going to stay in this hardcore organic chemistry. Um, but it didn't really interest me. I did uh, my my first rotation in a, in a hardcore chemistry lab, and I was making all these different drug variants, but we would just make them and, and look at their structure and then put them on the shelf. And I didn't really like that. So I, I ended up switching into a lab where I could study the effects of the drug on the body and ended up in my, my mentor's lab where we were looking at, um, yeah, a drug called valproic acid or the trade name is Depakote. It's used for epilepsy, but it causes a lot of weight gain side effects in the patients. Basically half the patients will gain a lot of weight, but their seizures are controlled. So the, the pros really outweigh the cons. Although I think if you ask somebody that puts on 15 kilos in a month, they're <laughs> maybe beg to differ. <laughs> and um, so I looked into that and found that this particular drug causes um, changes to the epigenome that um, basically turn off a lot of metabolic genes that should be on when you take the drug in the morning. And um, really, I wanted to dive into, you know, why why is this? And there's um, a new area of, of pharmacology called chronopharmacology, where you um, basically optimize the time of day where you take a drug. And that's what I started looking into with um, valproic acid, because it really just affects your, your cortisol levels that are spiking in the morning to help you wake up because waking up is stressful. And um, yeah, and, and then we, yeah, we identified if you could take the drug a bit later in the day, it wouldn't have uh, as extreme side effects. But yeah, that's sort of the, the, the deep story. 
of, the, of my research career. But then after, um, after my PhD, I didn't really want to continue being in academia. So I was looking for a new place to go. Um, I moved up to San Francisco at that time and was looking into the startup scene. And I found a cool startup called Prospect Bio, where I joined them as um, one of the first employees. And I was with them for two and a half years. And we were in the synthetic biology space. So this was 20, 2016 when, when SynBio was, I think, starting to get more mainstream. People were figuring, learning about it really for the first time. And, um, and we built a bunch of what we called biosensors. So um, we genetically engineered bacteria to be able to sense different fragrances and flavors. And we built a large library. This was very interesting to Ginkgo Bioworks and, and did a couple projects for them and they ended up acquiring uh, the library. And then after that, I kind of de demystified startups for me and um, brought me into wanting to start my own company. And then that's what brought me to EF and that's how we met each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. And then how did your journey lead to MeProbes? Specifically, yeah, yeah. what was your vision when you started uh, MeProbes? Yeah, so those sensors that I um, that I had built when I was a prospect bio, um, genetically engineering different bacteria to be to act as a sensor. We did this for small molecules. So this was like I mentioned, like fragrances and flavors. Um, so very specific molecules. But I saw an application there in the healthcare space. So using bacteria to detect other bacteria, and that's what that's what I wanted to um, to build when I started my probes. And so we went really hardcore into this this genetic engineering SynBio space to, um, to develop sensors and make them very easy to use. So you can genetically engineer these bacteria to change color when they interact with other bacteria because they detect certain molecules that the that bacteria uses to speak to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, that was, yeah, so that was the, um, the original idea. But like, I guess I would say the larger vision has always been to like simplify diagnostics because I think the general population, they their only interaction with a diagnostic is they get their blood drawn at their doctor and then they get a report two weeks later. They don't really know what's what's happening in between or they see something simple like a pregnancy test. And so there's this like disconnect. But now what we've seen with this movement with, with COVID is that we're seeing more people understand what, well, what diagnostics are. Now everybody is a, you know, a junior virologist. So we all know what PCR is. We all know what an antigen test yeah. is. We know what an antibody test is. And now that we kind of have this knowledge, it's like, why are we keeping everything sort of in the lab? Like there are simplified diagnostics that we can bring into the home so that people can monitor themselves and, and check for things themselves. And um, that's really the vision of my probes is to empower people to learn more about themselves and know what healthy means to them rather than at this snapshot of going to the doctor's office and only getting this like one reading um, instead being able to check yourself more frequently. And we're doing that sort of in two ways by taking current diagnostics that are um, already approved and on the market and making them simpler by using um, software tools that allow easier interpretation so that the customer doesn't misinterpret the results. And then on the other hand, we're doing it on the R&D side where we're building new diagnostic tools that change color that allow us to detect things that we weren't able to detect before. Oh, wow. So two things I've, I've, I've learned from your answer is that I've been pronouncing microbes wrong <laughs> so far. And, uh, <laughs> I've, 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 I kind of let anybody say it however they want to. Don't feel bad. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. 
And the second thing is that um, I guess it it all goes back to what you were talking about in the beginning, uh, the body's own circadian rhythm having an effect on on what kind of results you get from your diagnostics test and how mm-hmm. pharmaceutical drugs kind of interact with you. So is that yes, something yes, that's exactly. also important for, for my probes going forward? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right now we have a product where we're measuring five different health parameters from your urine. Um, and we're having some of our, our customers take the test, you know, in the morning and in the afternoon, and we even see variability from, from this. And so I think it's really important to get more data points around your health. And then, you know, I think in five years, 10 years time, like none of us are going to go to the doctor and say, what's wrong with me? We're going to come with our Apple Watch data and our <laughs> MyProbes data and our step count and our heart rate. And, uh, you know, we're going to come with everything and then say, all right, let's let's look at it together. <laughs> this day, I wasn't feeling that well. I have my I have my food log here. We're just going to come with a lot more information. And, and so. So we're going to help basically get us there by um, bringing more types of diagnostics and ways to read um, different outputs of your body into the home. That's pretty interesting that you talk about how research on biomarkers will just explode in the in the next few years. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it already mm-hmm. has in a way, but the fact that it's kind of merging with this um, this movement of personalized medicine is uh, is quite interesting. And there are many actors in the market who are trying to commercialize this knowledge on on the mm-hmm. different biomarkers. So I want to know like what is Microbes doing differently in this ecosystem? Yeah, yeah, there's uh, yeah, there are a lot of players in this that are bringing it I think a lot of these diagnostics consumer facing, I mean, the number, I guess I would say like number one, number two, it's you hear about levels, you hear about super sapiens that are using a continuous glucose monitor to, for athletes to monitor um, their blood sugar. And this is something that was only for diabetics up until yeah, I think like Abbott got the um, the approval to use this for athletes and now it's it's coming mainstream and you're seeing this incredible response. People are super curious to understand what, like, you know, why has this only been used for a disease? While I think a lot of us can benefit from it because I know I get very hangry and I would love it if my phone could predict <laughs> that I'm going to get hangry well, same. a little bit before I take that out on the, maybe on, on my boyfriend or somebody, somebody um, nearby. And and um, yeah, so I think I think there's a lot of importance in bringing this consumer facing. I think there's a lot of benefits. But what MyProbes is doing differently, obviously, the CGM, we're we're letting those players stay in the in the blood space, and we're using a different non-invasive tool. So we're using mm-hmm. urine as the um, yeah, basically as our fluid that we're measuring different um, different biomarkers from. And there was a recent study that found I think over two thousand different proteins in this huge proteomic study in our urine. And I think we're really we're literally flushing down the toilet a lot of very useful information that we can learn about our bodies. And so we're taking currently currently approved urine tests, just simplifying them so that um, the user can do this at home. But then we also plan to identify or basically make more diagnostics for these biomarkers that are already in urine and uh, build this out so that we can um, learn more about, yeah, just learn more about ourselves through something that we're overlooking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, it's quite interesting to have, I, I do know of a lot of um, actors in the space using blood 
uh, for diagnostics because there's so many mm-hmm. so many biomarkers mm-hmm. that you find in the blood but urine is such a great yes. way to like go forward because there are also a lot of biomarkers and it's absolutely non-invasive and um, depending on mm-hmm. the the design of your product you could it could be super easy to use it's a it's mm-hmm. a it's a great thing to do so then taking all of this into account what's your vision for the future and why does your solution uh, matter at microbes for the world when when you get it and when you get it right oh uh, yeah <laughs> i mean i think i think it's really good to change 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 the way we think about think about diagnostics you know i i actually have quite a few people um approaching me thinking that my that urine testing is just going to be adopted really quickly by women and we've found so far that actually we have 90% of men buying our our MVP at the moment i thought th- i think people think urine they just think pregnancy they think clear blue they think they think um so they're thinking a little bit um small about what we could what we could measure and how this could be used and how easily i think it will be adopted by by both genders and in this sort of like bio tracking biohacker space obviously as the early adopters um, <laughs> but yeah i think it's just i think it's just going to be another thing that you add to to the fitness app it's going to be something that's really easy you just get up in the morning, you, you, you look at your aura ring to see how you slept. You, you quickly pee on the microbes test. You check that everything is, you know, everything is in the green, you know, your immunity is high, your liver enzymes are looking hundred percent. You don't have any problems with the kidney, your nutrition, your hydration, it all looks good. You move on, you go do your workout. It's just going to become a part of the part of the routine. We're already sharing how I know if I sleep poorly, I, I take a snapshot, I send it to my friends. Like the next step is, oh, look at this crazy. We ate this really neat, heavy meal last night. Look how um, the pH of my <laughs> urine changed. <laughs> I think it it's it, it's going to take a, a little bit of getting used to, but I think it's uh, I think I think it'll be something that we can normalize. Yeah, that 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 makes diagnosticians out of all of us in a way. Yeah, I I, I think we're all inherently curious to know what's going on with our bodies and know a little bit deeper why, you know, why am I feeling foggy today? Anything that you could boil it down to and you could see it on a graph, I think, um, especially the scientists in us are, are, are getting pretty nerdy about it. Wow. And, and what does your first MVP f- uh, treat? Uh, what do you focus on? Yeah. So I would say we're not treating anything, <laughs> um, but we are, we're tracking. So we have five, we boil down um, 10 different color changing testing pads to five health parameters. So we look at immunity, nutrition, hydration, liver health, and kidney health. And this comes from 10 different parameters. So we look at white blood cells, red blood cells, nitrites. So that would signify any type of infection that's going on in, in your bladder. We look at specific gravity, glucose, ketones, and then the like albumin, so a, a protein in your urine, which would signify any signs of kidney disease, and also um, bilirubin and uh, urobilogen. I always mess that one up when I pronounce that one. And those are both indicators of uh, liver health. And sometimes if I have a glass or two of wine, you'll see those ones uh, going down a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> and so it's really fascinating to see kind of this direct effect and your kidneys cycle your urine every 48 hours. So you really can get um, a clear picture of what happened to you in the last two days. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess that's a that's the first kind of place to go to. Look at parameters from the kidney and liver when you're analyzing uh, urine. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the macro uh, relations that you can make with the with the data that you get from this analysis? Of course, you can you can track the small variations in your kidney health, your liver health. But can it be really telling for someone who mm-hmm. actually um, has issues with their kidneys or their liver? Yes, yes, it can. So I've spoken with um, around 15 nephrologists. So these are specialists in, in 
the kidney. And they've said that when they see somebody that has a issue with their kidney, they present a lot of protein in their urine. And one of the first things they do is a test similar to ours. But at this point, they've had a problem with the kidney probably for about a month because you're not going to present symptoms until much later than when you start to have the problem. So if this patient had our test and was doing our test, you know, every every week or every other day, then we'd be able to see that protein start accumulating in the urine much, much earlier, and we would be able to intervene. And this would save that patient a lot of probably pain and trouble where they are now in this very symptomatic case, and now the doctor is treating them. And typically what also happens here is that the doctor gives them a treatment, and then they also send them home with some of these urine test strips to say, okay, let's, let's see that protein come down out of your urine over the next few weeks. And when you think, and when everything's looking normal again, you can um, stop using the test strips. And so this is like a perfect case that we're talking about um, doing a trial with, um, with a nephrologist for this exact thing. It's saying, okay, let's, these patients that may be at risk of a relapse, um, they should just be checking their urine regularly and, and we could flag something much earlier. Oh, wow. So it's kind of taking diagnostics even earlier in the in the phase and and you that's that's great i mean if you can detect things earlier than you do today then yeah it gives you a lot more time to to kind of come to terms with it and handle it as things go forward exactly yeah yeah you even become a bit of a preventative diagnostic wow so among everything that you've achieved so far with uh, my probes what makes you particularly proud ah it's been such a fascinating journey you know i've been working on the company now two and a half years and I think in, when I'm in the thick of it, I, I barely celebrate the wins. But what I try to do is look back and, and think, okay, two and a half years ago, what did I, what did I not know that I now know? And I, I think I, I look back at it and I'm just like, wow, like I just starting a company, moving to a foreign country and getting this all up and running. I think that's probably like the, the, just honestly the most proud. <laughs> it's been such a, such a wild ride navigating the German bureaucracy and all of this paperwork that's in a language that I did not study in high school. Um, I'm, I'm still learning as I go. And uh, yeah, I think just that that whole thing and kind of having to pivot and adjust our our business through the the pandemic and and how and how we're focused now. I think yeah, I think just the whole yeah the whole thing. I'm mm, that's proud great. Of it all, really. Do you need to know a lot of German to create a startup in Berlin? I would say Berlin is a very unique city. It's very very international. So I would say the English is pretty commonly spoken here. When you have to interact with the government bodies, um, typically they they speak German, but you can get by. I I wish I would have known more German before coming here, but I. I, it hasn't stopped me. I think if I had known, I, being naive is is really, I, I would say it's it, it pays <laughs> off. Because <laughs> I think if I had known how difficult it would have been, maybe it would have scared me off. But since I was kind of naive about it and I was like, right, let's just see how this goes. And then I, you take it step by step. And, and you get through it. And then once you're, you know, once you filed for incorporation, these sorts of things, you don't really have to change it in, in, at all. So it's been, it's, I think it's been, it's been okay. Then there's also a lot of government support, but navigating, um, navigating the grant system in German, I, I really just thank DeepL for <laughs> existing. <laughs> if it wasn't for DeepL and Google Translate, I, I, I don't, oh, yeah. I don't think it would have been. A Sometimes I wonder what people did before that. Oh my gosh. They... <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know. They were brave souls. Um, so yeah, that brings me to my next question. Apart from the German, what has been the hardest challenge for you so far? Uh, we, let's see, probably we've had a, yeah, we, we had a pivot. So last year we wanted to use our biotechnology to make a rapid saliva test for COVID. And I think last year in particular, I mean, for so many reasons, it was it was challenging, but in particular, because we we decided to be part of the pandemic response. And we were in this like very rushed R&D um, in a very, very competitive space. I think that was probably the hardest challenge was diving into this and then just seeing the competitors kind of beating us at, at a certain point and then having to kind of backtrack to the original vision, pivot back, which in the long run, I think it's a, it's a great decision that we did it, that we did it. Um, it really accelerated us as a business. It made us get really focused really fast and um, I think sometimes scientists aren't very, we, we have the luxury of time, I think, in our PhDs and our postdocs where there's not really deadlines, there's not a lot of pressure. And so project planning usually doesn't happen, kind yeah. of is, um, I don't know, I think very independent, people work at their own pace. And this forced us to really like align, make a plan, be like, these are the milestones we need to hit. And if we don't hit them, this is what's going to happen. And, um, and I think that was a big learning for, um, for us. And so, although it was really challenging and it was exhausting and it was hard and having to do social distancing and, and work in the mask all day yeah. and these sorts of things, um, I think in the, in the long run, it taught us a lot of discipline. Yeah, that's true. And it's, uh, it's, it's incredible the, the kind of growth mindset you have because uh, you're willing to try it, everything and then you take you you take what works in the end and i think mm -hmm. that's a uh, yeah that's that's quite inspiring because to to pivot from urine to saliva is difficult as it is because i guess mm -hmm. it's you're diff you're dealing with a different sample and you're dealing with a different set of um, um mm -hmm. set of biomarkers i'm guessing but then like uh, yeah to to mm -hmm. to kind of try to make it work and then to pivot back when you know everyone's going through a crisis is uh, is yeah it's got to be very challenging mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in what ways do you think, just generally, um, has the has the COVID pandemic affected research in the pharmaceutical sciences, um, particularly in diagnostics? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it, it slowed everybody down. Obviously, in, in COVID-related diagnostics, it sped everybody up. So I think we all, in this field, were able to keep our labs open, keep keep researching. Because I remember when, when Germany first locked down and you needed a special piece of paper from your employer to keep working. And if you were working on COVID, you got a, basically got a free pass and you could use the public transportation. You could use this sort of, this sort of thing. So we were very lucky in, in that regard. But other, otherwise, I know a lot of my, my friends that are in academic labs or that if they're doing non-COVID work, they all sort of were at home doing a lot of data analysis or try, you know, kind of doing like projects that are on the periphery <laughs> of, their, of their main project. And I think they're still um, not at the, or at least not at the point that they thought they would be, you know, in their PhD or, or, or whatever, um, as because of the pandemic. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's slowed a lot of other research down um, because all eyes, you know, all eyes and hands were, were, on, were on COVID, especially in diagnostics. And, and now, which I think is a good thing because now we're seeing the importance of diagnostics for, for quite some time, especially in the, in the venture space, diagnostics were no, nobody's favorite. Um, it was very difficult to get funding in diagnostics. Yeah. Um, drug development was, was much more well-funded and diagnostics just didn't really excite anybody. And then last year, <laughs> you know, I think more money flew into diagnostics than ever before. 
And um, that's really, it was, it's made some huge, um, huge leaps because a lot of technologies that have been mostly lab-based, you know, like CRISPR, for example, is now finally becoming something that's actually used in, in the clinic or, or even in self-testing and at home. Yeah, I think uh, you touch upon a very important point because I remember when we, when we talked briefly at, at Entrepreneur First, EF, which is the accelerator where we met, I think we, we discussed a lot about uh, diagnostics technologies because I, I also was working on these rapid testing kits and back then it just seemed like like a very uh, sort of uphill battle because first of all nobody really understood uh, mm -hmm. why you needed different te diagnostics technologies and in the venture space to kind of convince people to invest in technologies that that they don't necessarily understand is it, it becomes very very difficult but now I think with with COVID it seems like everyone knows what are the different modalities uh, and what are the different ways you can you can diagnose uh, <laughs> diseases in a way and it seems like yeah you're uh, that you touch upon a very important point that it's it's kind of open up the world to to a variety of uh, diagnostics tests and uh, and hopefully like the space will continue to grow in the in the next few years yes yeah yeah I'm, I'm with you tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey what are the wins and uh, what are the learnings along the way that you've had yeah I yeah I've had a very interesting fundraising journey um coming out of EF I, I convinced the investment committee at EF to to fund my probes so that was the first kind of big win and that felt so cool you know to have um somebody believe in you and your idea. And we were so excited. I remember it was like the 4th of July, 2019. And um, I, yeah, I went out and like had a, had a American beer <laughs> at an American bar here and was so thrilled. And, and, and then it was a bit tough. Um, I think we, well, if, if, if anyone listening knows the Entrepreneur First um, Accelerator, you you have a demo day about um, six months after the in, while you're into the program, and you pitch in front of a bunch of investors. And at that time, we were still really, really early. We um, we did the demo day, but we didn't raise straight off the back out of demo day, which is um, typical for some EF startups. And like, wow, congratulations to them that they've got, you know, they got so much traction in six months. Um, but we were still pretty early. And so, but I'm glad I did it because I, I think raising money is a very, just a scary and intimidating thing. And nobody really knows how it goes until you you go out and do it. And you could read as many blog posts on Medium as, as, as you want, but until you get in, you know, some chats with investors, you really just don't know how it goes and, 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 and what, they expect or how you're going to pitch your company. Yeah. So we, we didn't raise money in 2019, but um, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, when we pivoted into building a, a COVID diagnostic that went super fast, um, we were able to raise a small angel round and that was, I, you really just felt the, I'm in the right place at the right time and everyone's aligned. And I had, you know, I had so many calls and it was really, it really shaped up very quickly. And, um, and now I'll be going back into fundraising probably in the, in the fall. And so hopefully it'll be another right place, right time situation. But um, yeah, it's, it's full of highs and lows. It's, you know, sometimes you have great conversations, sometimes you don't. But um, really the most important lesson is just don't get discouraged that you're going to get, a lot. you're, you're going to get a lot of no's no matter what. Um, I think about it sort of like, you know, replying for jobs, like you just need to get get yourself out in front of a lot of people and you know 10% of those people will say yes 2% of those people will say yes and those are the people you need to find and they're the people who are going to be yeah. on your team i think you touch upon a very important point because especially i think for biotech startups um i've talked to a lot of people about this and i think the the opinion is quite divided uh because from what i've seen a lot of startups that do get uh 
a lot of funding that that are able to get a lot of traction early on um they don't really they're not really developing biotech hardware and especially for biotech startups you need you have mm-hmm. like such a long phase of sort of like pre-development where you're just like figuring out exactly what techniques mm-hmm. you're going to use you're spending a lot of time in the lab and it's uh, like you said at that stage a uh, very very early stage and um and even i think for uh, when you're raising like with angel investors or venture capitalists i think the space is is not as well known as uh, as some of the other spaces like uh, like people who are completely on software mm-hmm. or or completely like uh, on electronics um so i think the the pandemic has definitely helped demystify the world a little bit but at the same time i, I think uh, it still remains a a challenge especially i think um i was talking to anna shrinskaya who's a uh, who's a CTO of Omini about this and and she 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 brought it up she said mm-hmm. it's a it gets tougher if you're a female founder and and your founding team is is 100% mm-hmm. female so is that is that something you agree with or mm-hmm. is that something you you've encountered I I agree um sometimes it's hard to place exactly you know if you if you're um facing some discrimination because because you're a female led team or if you know you're just not talking to the right investor and i try and i i mean i re- i read all the statistics i see you know 2% of venture capital money goes to female led teams and you read that and you're like but it's not going to be me <laughs> um but but i think i mean it is yeah i mean it is true there is um Google for Startups publishes this um German startup monitor where they really dive into the the funding um distribution and they it, one of their numbers was um a a female led team will raise in a in a pre-seed round for example 250,000 while a male led team will raise 4 million and i raised my 250,000 and um so i was like okay i am exactly the statistic um and then thinking you know okay maybe my male counterparts are now they're starting their businesses with so like so much more available capital but i'm being scrappy and i'm really being i'm, I'm being very conscious of where like every euro i spend where it goes and what i'm using my money very smart and so i think in the long run you know you see the statistics that like female led startups are profit more profitable early they have longer lives because i think because of this because we've had to stretch every euro that we have so much further than somebody that has a big um you know they have a big bank balance and they're able to um spend more freely they they're not as uh, not as conscious so i would say yes i agree that there there's definitely a separation there um and it it i it will change it will uh, but it will be slow and i hope one day maybe we look back in like a decade or two from now and i'm h- hoping other female entrepreneurs get started by by being their first angel investor <laughs> that's true i think uh, i do agree that the female led teams tend to be more resilient just because you you have to be so scrappy uh, very early on that sort of like mm-hmm. uh, carries forward mm-hmm. when you scale so, yeah, exactly. that, that's true and it makes me wonder uh, what are your thoughts on inclusivity in the workplace how do you think uh, a workplace can be more inclusive oh man i i think this is this is something my my co-founder and i so we're a female led team and we i think we're like biased in the opposite opposite end like we're trying to even the balance by bringing in a lot of <laughs> a very diverse team um because i i don't know you see a lot of teams especially in germany that um that are mostly kind of white men and um and so we're trying to balance the the table by uh by doing the opposite we we have you know a lot of women on our team um a lot of people of color and i don't i mean i yeah i don't know i think when you start being more inclusive it kind of just grows its itself um 
because you're building this kind of diverse network. And so when you ask somebody on your team, hey, do you know anybody that's that that's good at, I don't know, digital marketing? And they're like, oh yeah, I know somebody in it. If they have a diverse network, you end up just kind of in this, this big diverse pool, setting yourself up for that. And it kind of grows naturally. Well, I think if you're not kind of conscious of that, you end up like, like hires like, you know? And so you can end up with a very <laughs> homogenous pool of, uh, of people if you, <laughs> which, which then also kind of grows itself organically as well, because you do the same thing. You say, hey, does anybody know somebody that's an expert in sales? And then you kind of have somebody that, yeah, you just kind of end up in this pool. So I think, um, the, I mean, the best way to start is kind of getting, yeah, I guess like making sure that you're, you're aware of your biases and um, I mean, we're, we're aware of our biases and the, the opposite problem. We're like, okay, we should, we should start hiring some more like guys. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think like, yeah, if you're, if you're kind of conscious about it, it will grow, it will grow naturally. I think that's, that's quite interesting because uh, I've heard about like this cognitive bias that you have where uh, you tend to work with people who are a little bit like you and, uh, and this is, maybe mm-hmm. that's what happens with the male led teams. And that's why a lot of them are, are exclusively male. Um especially in the early stage going on. And uh, and even for the female-led teams, I've seen that female-led teams tend to hire more women. And um, and yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. just, the, like mm-hmm. you said, it's the pool that you're tapping into, which is which is equally diverse. And uh, and that, yeah, that really shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I think we're, we are also, yeah, pro- part of this bias as well. Um, but yeah, trying to do our best to, to also like just even the playing field and give, you know, give opportunities where, you know, these, I guess, like women uh, are not seeing it in the male-led teams. It's also super intimidating one way or the other if you have, you know, if you have a male, if you have five, if you have a team of five guys, if you have a team of five women, and then you hire the first kind of mixed gender employee into that, it's, um, it, they have to be a bold person kind of to go into either of those teams because it's yeah. like a little bit, you know, get you're the first one. Oh, that's true. Well, switching gears a little bit here, what, what are you looking forward to in the future in 2021 and then in 2022? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think for us, it's just, um, so we have the MVP out and now I'm looking forward to a lot of like, I'm, I'm kind of switching into marketing mode. And so I've been a scientist my whole life and now I'm learning about digital marketing and uh, click-through rates, uh, just all of these like performance KPIs that I've never heard of before. And I'm still such a, such a novice too, but we're starting to position the product correctly and getting real customers and interacting with those customers. And I'm really looking forward to just kind of emailing them directly, getting them on the phone and and understanding their experience with my product and what they're learning about themselves. It's very different than when you're in the lab all the time and you're, you're just building. And now it's a shift to something that's like the customer facing and it's yeah, it's really rewarding to be like, wow, this person actually like has my product and they're they're trying it out and they have opinions <laughs> about about what I'm doing and how I can make it better. Um, so I think I'm just looking forward to more and more of that as we kind of steadily grow. Yeah, it's true. I mean, especially at the early stage when you when you just have like a quick and dirty prototype out, it's uh, it's so valuable to have that feedback from the first few people who are using it and to know mm-hmm. like which way you can kind of improve their experience of of using the product that you're building yeah it's it's so different i think sometimes as as scientists we sort of just we put our head down and we're like if you know we look at it and we're like oh if we build it they will come but really it's kind of the other way you got to get the product out to the to the customer and then figure out what what do they want what problem do they have that they they are using this to solve and understanding that and then being able to kind of just yeah iterate on your product that way 
it's um, it's been a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's um, it's a totally different experience than, than R&D. <laughs> so then talking about the future, which innovations are you most excited about in the coming years? Um, I think because I'm really in this, obviously, this like bio tracking space. And so I'm seeing a lot of these. Well, I mean, there's the, a lot of these technologies that have actually have been around for quite some time. You know, everyone um everyone in my space is now talking about this bio tracker. It was, I was going to call it a fitness tracker. I suppose it is a fitness tracker called Whoop that um, they've made a, a small wearable that measures your recovery and your strain. So they're using new um, algorithms to, to basically take your training data and your sleep data so you can maximize your recovery in terms of how much strain you're putting on your body while you're training. And uh, I'm really interested to see like kind of like how that develops. Um, what are they going to add to this? Uh, what? How are we going to incorporate my probes into the whoop? <laughs> and, uh, and sort of just see how all these bio trackers kind of grow and evolve. And I, I just, yeah, I really think that, that more of these types of devices are going to come out, more things that are non-invasive. Um, I also recently, uh, actually my neighbor is working on a glucose monitoring that is um, non-invasive. So they measure through through the skin. Um, and so this is going to really change the game when when that comes onto the market, which maybe will be, you know, maybe it's five, 10 years time. Um, but they have a, yeah, they have a very cool technology. And I'm like, once that, you know, once you have the the non-invasive glucose monitor, we're all going to be wearing that. Wow. So, so do you expect that in like, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years time, all of these little uh, kind of diagnostic technologies will kind of consolidate into into sort of one product that we can just, like you were saying in the beginning, you know, we just use it and then we we can tell in real time how our vitals are changing throughout the day. Do you see that as a as a as a part yeah. of our future? Yes, ab- absolutely. We already have, you know, we have blood oxygen oxygen monitoring. I think in the in the Garmin and in the Apple Watch. Um, so adding glucose to that is, I think, going to be quite straightforward and simple. Then. You know how we how we incorporate urine into that. It might be something in in you know the Japanese smart toilet. <laughs> so it's it's totally kind of hands free. Um, at at the moment we have you know we have these testing cards. So it is a little bit of uh, you have to remind the person to do it. But this is um, yeah I think uh, I I think it's all going to be kind of come part of the. It's just going to be built in to the the smart home around us. Oh, wow. So Nina, do you have any recommendations for anyone listening to the podcast? Of course. Yes, yes. Um, So I'm an avid reader. I try to read 52 books a year. And so I have, um, yeah, so I would say I have a couple book recommendations. So the the first is to Pixar and beyond. I read this recently, and it's the CFO of Pixar's story of how he I like you read the story and you're like, oh my gosh, without without him, Pixar would never be what they are today. It's an incredibly captivating story. I walked away from it saying like, all right, I need a CFO. <laughs> um, it's it's super super cool because it, it's it's also like a history of how Pixar started out and how they made Toy Story as their first feature film and, and how they negotiated their deal and ultimately their um, their sale to Disney. And it's, it's awesome. I, I highly, highly recommend it. And then um, a second book I would recommend is, um, it's called The Art of Gathering. It's by Priya Parker. And it's all about gatherings and how we can be more present in our gatherings, more organized about um, what do we want to get out of this gathering and thinking of every opportunity that you come together, either as a, a one-on-one or as a group, how you can set an intention for that gathering. And it's um, it's a really beautiful book. And she's done 
she also has a newsletter that she's um, addressing kind of this re-socialization that we all ha- are going into now after the pandemic and how we should think about gathering um, as we start to do this again and how it's going to affect our energy and stuff. And she, it's it's so it's such a, such an amazing book. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a very good recommendation because I, f- I feel like personally, I've forgotten how to how to be in gatherings after like, I don't know, a year and a half <laughs> of being in lockdown. So it's going mm-hmm. to be a pretty interesting read to know like how to hang out with mm-hmm. people after things open up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like just a couple questions you can ask that aren't just, you know, how how is your <laughs> lockdown? Um, maybe uh, things that are a bit more... Um, yeah, just a, a bit softer, and maybe don't we don't have to talk about you know this this trauma we all went through. Like we can just ask about you know what what did you learn about yourself uh, during this time that you spent <laughs> by yourself? <laughs> well, that's that's really interesting. Thanks a lot, Anina, for joining us today. Do you have any final words for anyone listening? Um, I think my recommendation to to anybody is if you're thinking about going and doing something, just just go do it. There's never a right time you're never going to feel ready. And so if you want to start a company or if you want to change jobs or if you're thinking about taking up a new hobby, just start. Um, and then it gets easier as you go. But it's always going to be hard. You just have to choose choose your heart. Wow, that's profound. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot, Nina. Thank you once again for joining us um, at the Research Podcast. I, I really enjoyed our discussion today. And uh, and yeah, hope to see you soon and, and learn about your fundraising in the next year. Thanks, Apsa. It was a lot of fun. Um, thanks for inviting me. And uh, I had a good time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Research Podcast. If you have any comments or recommendations, please reach out to us on any of our socials. You'll find the details in the show notes. You can also support this podcast by reviewing us on your podcast app. Wish you a great week and see you next time. Bye.